Welcome to the Bob Harden Show, bringing you news and commentary to keep you informed and enjoying life on the Paradise Coast. And now, here's your host, Bob Harden. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning. Johnson's Air Conditioning is Naples' longest established air conditioning company. Hope you give them a call. Visit johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. We have terrific guests for today's show, including Mark Schulman. He's the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. We'll be talking about current global events. We'll visit with Sal Nuzzo, the vice president of policy at James Madison Institute. We've got a lot to talk about with regard to the current legislative session. And Jim McTagg, former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief and author of a couple of great murder mystery novels, will visit with Jim as well. It is April the 23rd, and on this day in 1986, the world's worst nuclear power plant accident occurred in Chernobyl, the nuclear power station in the Soviet Union. 32 people died and dozens more suffered radiation burns in the opening days of the crisis, but only after Swedish authorities reported the fallout did the Soviet authorities reluctantly admit that the accident had occurred. The Chernobyl uh, station was situated in a settlement of Pipyat. Uh, Pripyat is about 65 miles north of Kiev in the Ukraine. Built in the late 1970s on the banks of the Pripyat River, Chernobyl had four reactors, each capable of producing 1,000 megawatts of electric power. On the evening of April the 25th, 1986, a group of engineers began an electrical experiment on number four reactor. The engineers, who had little knowledge of uh, reactor physics, wanted to see if the reactor's turbine could run emergency water pumps on inertial power. So this is, this is just all human error and stupidity. There's nothing wrong with a nuclear power plant. It's just human error. As part of the poorly planned design experiment, the engineers disconnected the reactor's emergency safety systems and its power regulating system. Next, they compounded this recklessness with a series of mistakes. They ran the reactor as a power level so low that the reactor became unstable and then removed too many of the reactor's control rods in an attempt to power it up again. The reactor's output rose to more than 200 megawatts, but was proving increasingly difficult to control it. Nevertheless, at 1.23 a.m., the engineers continued with the experiment and shut down the turbine engine to see if its inertial spinning would power the reactor's water pumps. In fact, it did not adequately power the water pumps, and without cooling water, the power level of the reactor surged. To prevent meltdown, the operators reinserted all the 200-some control rods in the reactors at once. The control rods were meant to reduce the reaction, but had a design flaw, graphite tips. So before the control rods, about 5 meters of absorbent material could penetrate the core, 200 graphite tips simultaneously entered, thus facilitating the reactor and causing an explosion that blew off the heavy steel and concrete lid of the reactor. It was not a nuclear explosion as nuclear power plants are incapable of producing such a reaction, but uh, was chemical driven by the ignition of gases and steam that was generated by the runaway reaction. In the explosion ensuing fire, more than 50 tons of radioactive material was released into the atmosphere where it was carried by air currents. God knows where. On April the 27th, Soviet authorities began an evacuation of the 30,000 inhabitants of Pripyat. A cover-up was attempted, but on April the 28th, Swedish radiation monitoring stations more than 800 miles to the northwest of Chernobyl reported radiation levels 40% higher than normal. Later that day, the Soviet news agency acknowledged that a major nuclear accident had occurred. In the opening days of the crisis, 32 people died at Chernobyl and dozens more suffered radiation burns. The radiation that escaped in the atmosphere, which was several times that produced by the atomic bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, was spread by wind over northern and eastern Europe, contaminating millions of acres of forest and farmland. An estimated 5,000 Soviet citizens eventually died from cancer and other radiation-induced illnesses caused by their exposure to Chernobyl radiation, and millions more had health adverse, uh, adversely affected. In 2000, the last working reactors at Chernobyl were shut down and the plant was officially closed. So the experiment didn't work, and again, human uh, error, not the nuclear power itself, 
created the problem. That all happened on this day, 1986. Well, the Florida Department of Health on Sunday reported 77 more uh, COVID cases and one new death in Collier County. The seven-day moving average of hospitalizations is at 54 uh, as of April the 22nd. So again, uh, the curve is flattened. Plenty of hospital beds available. And uh, of course, things are in control here in uh, Collier County. But what's going on in India? We'll talk about that a little bit later with uh, Mark Schulman. A pair of professors from Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, say indoor social distancing guidelines are unnecessary and not based on science after finding that it makes virtually no difference whether folks are six or 60 feet apart when it comes to the spread of COVID-19. So the professors, uh, Martin Bazant and John uh, W.M. Bush, have pub- uh, published a study arguing that the current revival of American economy is being predicated on social distancing, specifically the six-foot rule, a guideline that offers little protection from pathogen-bearing aerosol droplets sufficiently small to be con- continuously mixed through the indoor space. They found, in short, uh, that the risk of being exposed to COVID-19 indoors is as great as 60 feet as it is at 6 feet, even when wearing a mask. Yeah, I'm just going to pause there. It's unbelievable information, isn't it? When our analysis continues to show that many spaces have been shut down, in fact, don't need to be continued, oftentimes the space is large enough, the ventilation is good enough, the amount of time people spend together is such that those spaces can be safely operated even at full capacity and the scientific support for reduced capacity in those spaces is really not very good. Hmm. He argued that the mandates implemented across the nation during the pandemic that have shuttered businesses and schools have been unnecessary. Not helpful, but unnecessary. This emphasis on distancing has been really misplaced from the very beginning, he said. The CDC or WHO have never really provided justification for it. They've just said is what you must do, and the only justification I'm aware of is based on studies of coughs and sneezes where they look at the largest particles that may might sediment onto the floor, and even then, it's very approximate. You can't s- certainly have longer or shorter range drop large droplets. No science behind this. That's what they're saying. The distancing isn't really helping you much, and it's also giving you a false sense of security because you're as safe at six feet as you are at 60 feet if you're indoors. Everyone in that space is roughly the same risk, actually, he said. The story goes on, but I'm just going to stop it here. The point is this. There's very little science behind the shutdowns, behind the masks, behind the distancing. It's all junk science. The Arizona ballot audit has begun with election officials poised and ready to oversee the hand count more than 2.1 million ballots. Actually, it's already started. You can watch it. A brief uh, weekend pause at the Arizona Senate's election audit that a judge ordered on Friday won't happen because the Arizona Democratic Party declined to put up $1 million bucks, and that would be a bond that the judge requested to cover any expenses that the Senate wrongfully incurs due to the halt. Maricopa County Superior Court Judge Christy Christopher Corey ruled that the audit must halt by f- from 5 p.m. Friday to noon on Monday, but that order was contingent on the Arizona Democrat Party, which uh, brought the lawsuit seeking to, to block the audit, posting a million bucks bond to cover the expenses of the, that the Senate fit wrong when really occurred during the delay. The Senate released release of the Veterans Memorial Coliseum, where the audit is being conducted, ended is ends on May the 14th. Uh, well, they didn't put up the money. And uh, so the audit is continuing. Now, you know these judges right now, or these uh, Democrats, are getting all kinds of lawsuits ready in other courts to halt this thing or to discredit it, even though it's a forensic audit. They're actually using infrared uh, lights. You can actually watch it. They have many, many cameras that are available to watch what's going on. Uh, it's, it's just scaring the heck out of the Democrats. By the way, uh, MSNBC, Rachel Maddow predicted long-run consequences to the GOP-backed 2020 election audit in Maricopa County. The opinion host told her audience on Friday that supporters of former President Donald Trump will use the process to cast doubt on the results in a way that none of their failed lawsuits in the past have been able to do. She's absolutely right about that. 
Maddow also noted that people hired by the Republican-led Arizona Senate to conduct the audit of the county now have possession of the election materials in the county that includes Phoenix, calling them conspiracy theorists. Well, this is a forensic audit. What is she talking about? But this is what happens. Uh, these people on these networks, instead of reporting the news, it's a narrative, and they're just creating doubt now onto what's happening with regard to the audit in Mar Maricopa County. That's too bad. Well, uh, coming up, uh, we're going to visit with Mark Schulman, the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. This segment of the show is brought to you by Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples, the longest established air conditioning company. I hope you'll visit the website, johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. Coming up, Mark Schulman, the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. That and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. I'm Bob Harden, the host of the Bob Harden Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service, fabulous food, and a rockin' good time. Lulabee's Diner is a throwback to the 60s, complete with great music and a fabulous 60s decor. What I like best is a blend of great food, great value, and terrific service. Most of the friendly waitstaff has been part of Lulabee's for years. I enjoy the great choices for breakfast and lunch, and you'll find the menu has everything and anything to satisfy your taste. Lulabee's offers catering, party platters, lunch boxes, and more. Lulabee's Diner will quickly become one of your favorites for breakfast or lunch. No reservations are needed. Check out the website at lulabees.com and stop by Lulabee's Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m., seven days a week. Lulabee's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulabee's Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rockin' good time. Did you know St. Matthew's House operates the only emergency homeless shelters in Collier County? St. Matthew's House provided more than 500,000 hot meals to those in need last year, and since 2010, 527 men and women have graduated from the St. Matthew's House Justin's Place Addiction Recovery Program. For over 30 years, St. Matthew's House has provided innovative solutions to fight homelessness, hunger, substance abuse, and poverty in Southwest Florida. And you can help St. Matthew's House in this life-transforming work by patronizing the St. Matthew's House Thrift Stores, Cafe M25, Car Wash and Detailing Center, and award-winning catering operations. For more information, visit stmatthewshouse.org. That's stmatthewshouse.org. St. Matthew's House is a 501c3 not-for-profit organization and does not solicit government funding. back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability. I proudly serve on their board, creating policies and programs to get able-bodied folks off of welfare and back to work. It's a moral imperative, and that's just one of the initiatives. I hope you'll take a look at the website, thefga.org. Coming up, we're going to visit with Sal Nuzo, the Vice President of Policy from the James Madison Institute. Right now we have with us Mark Schulman. Mark is the founder and publisher of a great multimedia website. It's called HistoryCentral.com. Good for kids of all ages. I hope you'll check it out, HistoryCentral.com. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure, Mark. Thank you, Mark. So let's talk about current world events, and uh, let's start off with coronavirus. Uh, I guess right now our, our listeners, for our listeners' benefit, you're in Tel Aviv and have been for... What, four months, five months? Four months, five months now, five months. Yeah, a long time. So appreciate your participation on the show, and uh, good things are happening in Israel with regard to coronavirus. Absolutely. Well, because 60% uh, of the country and about 85% of the adults have now been vaccinated, um, Israel has, for all intents and purposes, reached herd immunity. Mm. Uh, there were only 39 cases yesterday, keeping in mind that at the peak we had 10,000 cases a day. And I believe there were three days in a row no one has died. Yeah. So um, the vaccine works, um, and um, 
cases are, you know, oh, way, way, way down. Everything's back to normal. There are people, there's still restrictions of wearing masks indoors, but that's it. There are effectively no other restrictions at the moment, although there are places only people who've been vaccinated are allowed to go. And that's so based on the business. Are the, of that nature. are the businesses making that decision, or is it the, the state, the Israel? Well, the government, okay. So the, in, in terms of businesses, people can go whether they're vaccinated or not vaccinated. Um, in terms of concerts and those things, large gatherings, you need to be vaccinated in order to be allowed in. Okay. Uh, nightclubs. But, you know, there's no, there, there is almost no vaccination hesitancy in the country. Uh, there are always a few people who are, you know, science deniers who refuse to do it, but there aren't that many of them at this point. And it worked. And there's yeah. no question about it. So, Mark, um, with amazing results, actually. And But you know what's scary? Uh, here in uh, Collier County, we have just a few cases every day, so we haven't seen a, you know, uh, an increase. But what's happening in India? India is just unbelievable. They thought they had beaten it. The numbers had been way down. Mm. And then they allowed large-scale rallies. There were political rallies. There were elections. They allowed uh, Hindu religious observation observances where tens and tens of thousands of people got together in close quarters. And suddenly, um, the variant that seems to be in India is, is more virulent than any other other version in the world right now. And the numbers are just astounding. We're talking hundreds of thousands a day. That's probably a way undercount. We're talking thousands and thousands of deaths a day, and that's also, they believe, an undercount. The hospitals are now completely overwhelmed. Is a shortage of oxygen in the country. Literally, people are dying because they can't get oxygen. Because yeah. obviously, one of the things needed is oxygen when you have COVID. And so, you have almost a complete collapse in a country that was doing very, very well. I mean, India and Brazil, two countries that are both doing poorly, to say the least, both have their own variants, and both of them, uh, the government decided that, well, Brazil never did anything. Mm-hmm. And in India, they had a strict lockdown at the beginning, and that worked. And then um, later they let everything go, and it was too soon. Yeah, and that's always the, the concern. And of course, India produces vaccines, and they're vaccinating, but they've only vaccinated at this point about seven or eight percent of the population. Uh, huge, huge pop- population of one billion three hundred thousand. Yeah, huge population. And one thing that occurs to me: there is a natural social distancing that happens from country to country. For example, I think. Uh, for example, the Japanese uh, are much co- more comfortable being very close together, and I think perhaps the Indians and Pakistanis as well. Here in the United States, there is a dis- if you get too close to somebody, there's a, a degree of discomfort. Am I making sense? Do you know what I'm saying? Maybe, but I think you're you know you're forgetting urban environments, people on subways, and things yeah, like that, yeah. where it's very different. And maybe in in a suburban Collier County where there is no subway, that may be the case. Yeah. You're right. But uh, my experience on the New York City subways, there is no social distancing going on Yeah, for Corona. Well, so uh, we, you know, to your point, here in Collier County, I think people are being safe. We don't wear masks. Uh, we were out for dinner on Saturday night with some friends, both of whom, by the way, had code who are in their 70s. Uh, but uh, nobody was wearing masks. So, But everybody is being careful. You know, nobody's... <laughs> nobody's you know, uh, uh, doing stupid things, and the consequences, I think, uh, but just by being safe. Uh, Again, the, the, the issue, the stupid things that people can do, unfortunately, are things that people do, like, unfortunately, going to a religious observance indoors mm-hmm. is a very problematic event, because singing is one of the ways that COVID can be spread. Mm. So it, it's interesting. It's not, it's, it's not a question of, it's a question of making that choice. So sitting outdoors, dining risk is almost none, even in a place where People aren't all vaccinated. Um, going indoors to a nightclub where people are singing and dancing, that's a little more problematic. Yeah, right, right. But, but uh, you know, in Ireland, I think I got this right, uh, for example, they've uh, forbidden uh, to have confession in the Catholic, even in the Catholic Church, even outdoors. I mean, <laughs> it's meddling in personal uh, activities. Like It's just like nobody's business. The state has no business doing that. Question: When when there are health emergencies, where the where the line gets drawn is a very difficult question. Obviously, yeah. so let's move yeah. to uh, let's move away from coronavirus uh, and talk about what else is happening on, on the uh, uh, 
earth here, and uh, let's talk about what's going on in Iran. Okay, so Iran, there's multiple levels here. So first of all, um, there are elections coming up, and the tape came out the last day or two where it's very clear that it's the Revolutionary Guard that, that are calling all the shots in the country. And uh, where that goes, it, it's unclear. Mm. Um, there's been this confrontation with Israel, uh, quiet, uh, that, uh, you know, tit for tat that's been going on both in Syria and on the sea. Um, but it's really not clear where, where, where any of this is going at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, the Iranians don't seem to be willing to make the concessions to reach an agreement with the United States right now in terms of the JCOPA talks that have taken place. Uh, they've supposedly made some progress, but it's not clear where that's going to go. Um, it's not clear also the um, whatever sabotage took place in the Natanz plant the Iranians claimed they're up and running and everything is fine. Others are saying it's going to take them a year to catch up. So, again, one of those things we don't have the answers to. Hmm. And is there any uh, doubt about how the election is going to... I mean, I think you said that the Iranian Guard is a... No, there is some doubt. I don't understand this. It's not an election between the Democrats and the Republicans or between the Democratic forces and the reactionary forces. It's all a question of personalities, all within the acceptable bounds of the cleric state. Yeah. So there's a lot of questions who's going to win, but it's, it's it's nothing to do with, there's no way of saying, well, these are the good guys and these are the bad guys, and the bad guys are going to win or the good guys, and they're all bad guys. They're all bad guys. It's a question <laughs> of which one are going to win. Okay, Mark. Hey, we have so much more to talk about. Can you stick around? Absolutely, Bob. All right. We're going to have more here on the Bob Harden Show on the uh, Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Blue Provence Restaurant is a favorite dining destination for many Neapolitans, including Linda and myself. Blue Provence, located in a historic building in the heart of Old Naples at Creighton Cove, offers a mix of French bistro cooking with bold, fresh Floridian flavors. Experience award-winning cuisine at Blue Provence and enjoy one of Florida's most extensive, eclectic, and fun wine cellars. Dining to choice are the popular Eden Bar, the intimate Courtyard Garden, or the beautiful Provencal Caribbean Dining Room. Enjoy a wonderful and memorable evening in a casual and relaxed atmosphere that includes a taste of Provencal hospitality. Blue Provence is open seven days a week, all year round. Visit BlueProvenceNaples.com for reservations, everyday specials, and coming events. That's BlueProvenceNaples.com or call 261-8239. That's 261-8239. Blue Provence French Restaurant in the heart of Old Naples. Golfshore Playhouse is passionately committed to enriching our cultural landscape by producing professional theater to the highest artistic standards and providing unique educational opportunities to folks in a spirit of service, adventure, and excitement. Over the past 15 years, the Playhouse has expanded immensely, outgoing its current facilities. With dreams of expanding even further in order to better serve the community, broaden the economic impact, and strengthen the cultural fabric of our region, it's time to build and move into a new home. A 44,000-square-foot state-of-the-art theater and education center will be built on three acres at the corner of First Avenue South and Goodlett Frank Road, allowing Gulf Shore Playhouse to achieve those dreams. To find out more about Gulf Shore Playhouse, this state-of-the-art performing arts center, and about the season's exciting productions, visit golfshoreplayhouse.org. That's golfshoreplayhouse.org. We'll see you at the show. Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Choice Social, a new and refreshing social networking platform. You can download the app on choicesocial.us. Coming up, I'm going to visit with Jim McTagg, former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief. Right now, we continue the conversation with Mark Shulman. Mark is an author. He's written several books, mainly on past presidents, and also founder and publisher of a terrific multimedia website, HistoryCentral.com. Again, Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure, Bob. So uh, the Russians packed in and said, we're done with the maneuvers. We're going to uh, moving away from the uh, line and, on uh, Crimea. What, do, what are your thoughts on that? 
I think they back down. I think it's very clear that uh, the Russians at this point were confronted with pushback by the Biden administration and by the European allies, since the Biden administration has rebuilt those those ties. And the Russians, look, the Russians are mostly hot air. In other words, they will get away with whatever they can get away with. They'll push as far as they can push without getting any pushback. The minute they get pushback, uh, they're not interested, I think, in taking the risks. I mean, you never know with them, obviously. Yeah, was there a but quid pro quo, or was it the, didn't uh, the, something uh, happen that sparked uh, a quid pro quo, perhaps, with uh, the United States? No, nope, not at all. The only, thing, the only thing that's happened, I mean, the Biden administration has put sanctions on the Russians mm. um, and has, you know, they threw out Russian diplomats. The Russians, of course, threw out American diplomats and said certain NGOs can't operate. They also, by the way, uh, got Nivene medical care, which was another back down that they made uh, against the push push from both the United States and the rest of the world. Hmm. And there may be a Putin um, Biden summit on Biden's terms, it looks like. Yeah, I think that was so, the news I was thinking of. So uh, perhaps a summit. So, well, right, we'll but the summit was something that Biden asked for. Okay. So, um, so the reality is the Russians, if you push back, um, they won't go any further because they're mostly a paper tiger. They don't really have the technology, the money, or anything else to really confront uh, the United States or the West. But if you don't push back, then they'll keep on pushing. Yeah, and so there's also a side story on this that the Russians spying in the Baltic states and uh, the, uh, <laughs> all kinds of mischief going on. Any comments on that? No, I mean, listen, they're going to keep on trying to do mischief. That's, that's their goal. Any low-hanging fruit, anything they can do without any um, pushback, they will do. Yeah. No question about it. Um, but on the other hand, when there's pushback, they won't. Yeah. And, you know, we're seeing a, an administration that has managed to mobilize its allies and work together with NATO in having a coordinated response. And that's what NATO was there for to begin with. Let's yeah. keep that in mind. So uh, Earth Day came and went, and uh, there was a climate meeting, a, I guess a virtual climate meeting. It was done by Zoom. Uh, any thoughts on that? Look, you know, there are two different thoughts to think about for the moment. One is the question of whether the uh, pandemic has pushed the world further apart or further together, mm -hmm. which is an interesting question. There's no easy answer to that, right? I mean, part of the reason the pandemic was able to spread so rapidly around the world is because of how we we're integrated from country to country. On the other hand, maybe was you know we we can't unintegrate in any case, so maybe the realization is there are some problems that are bigger than the nation state, and we need to find new ways of working together uh, to tackle them. Climate is obviously one of those issues that no one country can solve by itself. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a realization in a lot of places that they, you know, they, they need to do something about it. I mean, China is the biggest problem, obviously, and the biggest challenge, because China um, is the largest polluter in the world right now. And they're still building coal plants. They were stopping um, for a few years, and then they've, um, they've gone back to doing that. But on the other hand, the, the air pollution in China itself is so tremendous that the Chinese understand the fact that they have to do something. So um, we'll have to see. Yeah. Um, the United States can lead to a certain extent, like it always has since the World War II. But it's a question of whether they can convince other countries to do their part. Again, it comes down to the, always the problem of the commons, always the problem that what you do here uh, helps other countries or other people. You don't have a control, and you need other countries' involvement in order to have that impact. So it makes me a wonder. challenge. Anything that's the commons is a challenge because you're not in a closed system and you get closed feedback. So interesting. I, was, I moderated a pan, uh, There are a group of men that uh, get together. Uh, they were part of the pres Young Presidents Organization 40 years ago, and they've continued to meet uh, every year. And, and uh, there were uh, co conservative guys in there like me, and then there was a, a folks who were very liberal as well. And I talked a little bit about the uh, Agenda 21 and uh, globalization and where this all may lead. And he, you know, one gentleman said, you know what, hey, uh, I think it's a great idea. I think if we had one government globally, I think it'd be a terrific thing because it lead to peace on earth and that kind of thing. And, you know, I, I said, I don't even trust my condo association <laughs> leaders, never mind trusting somebody to run the world. So 
uh, my question is basically, uh, where is this all leading? Do you think there's, uh, I mean, I understand that we need to have affiliations with other countries, but, uh, you know, I, I, also, I also covet the fact that we have uh, our own government with our own, uh, with our own constitution. What are your thoughts? Well, obviously, look, one of the questions, look, let's, let, let's look at the United Nations as an example, right? The United Nations was an attempt and still an attempt to create a global organization that ties all of the individual countries together in some form or another. Uh, look at the United States government, right? There was a union of states. Each state remained independent, yet each state was, no long, was not independent. Uh, you have the EU. So you have to find the right balance, I think. That's one of the key questions, the right mm -hmm. balance between personal freedoms and freedoms that differ from nation to nation and place to place to having a body that can deal with issues that are global in nature. Yeah. And whether it's coordinating global responses or doing them, you know, for instance, uh, the United Nations has certain uh, United States security forces that can be that can be working for the United Nations, that they come from different countries, obviously. So it's a very difficult and difficult balance. Look, the founders of the United States had the same exact problem trying to balance yep. the rights of states with the needs of a federal government. Strong federal government, and yet, how do you not trample on the needs of the individual states? How do you have a strong international organization that can grapple with certain problems that are transnational that no one country can do, and yet, how do you make sure that every individual country has its full independence? Yeah. These are not easy. They're, they don't lend themselves to uh, slogans or simple solutions. Um, they require a certain amount of trial and error to find the right, right balance. But we need to understand on both levels. We need our personal freedoms. We need our, our idiosyncratic um, freedoms that a, a state can give us that differ from state to state or from nation to nation. Yet we need to find ways of dealing with certain problems that that are beyond any one nation. Yeah, you know what? Uh, deal with. Uh, I I think it was Ben Franklin that said something to the effect that look, if you uh, want, if you are willing to concede your freedoms for security, you'll end up with neither. Something to that effect. Right. I mean, that's a, that's a challenge, right? I mean, that's that, that. If it was easy, yeah, um, they wouldn't have spent you know months at the Constitutional Convention trying to work out the details. Right and get the balance just right. And that was, you know, 13 little states with very little power, with very little to lose. Um, they put together the Constitution that survived all these years, yeah. um, even though we have, you know, plenty, plenty of issues and no one says it's a perfect document. Uh, so the same way, it, it's going to require a lot of thought over many years yeah. to find that balance. You know, for instance, Europe, the European Union was probably good until it went to one currency, right. and it became problematic. So interesting. So, well, Mark, I, uh, maybe this will be our last topic. But let's stop, uh, end on a very positive note in, in the uh, world, and this SpaceX launch captured my imagination. It is just so interesting using uh, private enterprise in order to accomplish, and getting a, a, a total of 11 astronauts up in the space station. That's so interesting. What are your thoughts? No, it's really great. Watching that You know, it brings me back to my childhood 60s, watching those first space launches. Now I watch them with my son, who's already in his early 20s, and we watch these launches together. And of course, the most thrilling thing is watching those plant, watching those rockets come back down. Yeah, uh, which is really thrilling. Look, they just got a they just got the um, contract to land people on the moon. Yeah, and you know they're going to use the, that spaceship, the one that keeps on crashing right now in all the test flights. But that spaceship, which they're also designing to go to Mars is not designed to bring three people. It can bring 10 or 11 people to the moon, for instance. Amazing. So we're talking about a whole other world that uh, Elon Musk and SpaceX was building. The greatest engineers, it looked like, in the country were all working for him. And it's the greatest partnership between private industry and and government, I think, out there. And it's really working very, very well. Absolutely. I'm so, I'm so proud myself. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, too, this was actually recycled uh, uh, uh Space, uh, uh, you know, they right, absolutely. It, it flew. It flew again. It's the same one that took uh, took another crew there. I mean, it's amazing when you think about it. It seems so yeah. simple and obvious, right? I mean, why do we keep on? Why were they throwing out all these components after launch? Right. Uh, but it required, you know, Musk's uh, brilliance to come out with a way of 
of obviously the space, the capsule itself comes back to Earth, so that's easy to reuse, but be able to reuse the booster booster rockets as well. Yeah, amazing. I mean, stuff. the don't forget the space shuttle itself was reusable. Yeah, but it took uh, almost a year to from the time it landed until it was ready to fly again. It is amazing. Mark so. Schulman, again, the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. Mark, we have so much more to talk about, but uh, as usual, we run out of time before we have uh, rather than topics. So. I just genuinely appreciate your commentary here in the show. Thank you so Have much. Have a great week, you. everybody. You as well. Thank you, Mark. All right, coming up, we're going to visit with Sal Nuzo, the Vice President of Policy at the James Madison Institute. We're going to do that and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. you suffer from joint pain in your shoulders, hips, or knees? I was suffering from debilitating pain in my knees. On a referral, I saw Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine. He successfully treated my symptoms and pain for several months. Finally, having exhausted all alternatives for pain management, Dr. Markovich and I agreed that surgery was my best alternative. Dr. Markovich replaced both of my knees in 2006, and I now have full range of motion in both knees, and I have no pain. I now play golf and exercise free of debilitating pain in my knees. Don't suffer needlessly with joint pain. Call orthopedic surgeon Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine at 482-5399. That's 482-5399. He did a great job for me and he'll help you too. Listen to the Bob Harden Show, so why not market your company to our loyal listeners? Ads are played live on each show and then archived so listeners can hear the show and your ad at their convenience. Each advertising package includes a banner on BobHarden.com with a link to your website at no extra charge. Join Lulabee's Diner, Johnson's Air Conditioning, Blue Provence, and many others who advertise on the show. Call me at 598-3889, that's 598-3889, or send an email to BobHarden at Hotmail.com to design an ad program that's just right for your business and your budget. You'll be pleasantly surprised at the cost and the value. Several advertisers have been with me for years. Find out why by calling 598-389 or send me an email to bobharden at hotmail.com. You'll be glad you did. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host... Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Gulf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best. And you can get tickets now by visiting gulfshoreplayhouse.org. Coming up, we're going to visit with Jim McTagg, former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief. Right now we have with us Sal Nuzo. Sal is the Vice President of Policy at the James Madison Institute. Sal, thank you so much for joining us. Glad to be with you. Thanks for having me, Bob. Always a pleasure, Sal. Tell us about the James Madison Institute. Sure. JMI is a nonprofit, nonpartisan uh, economic policy uh, think tank. So our focus is on anything public policy-wise that uh, touches Florida's economy. So our mission is to educate uh, lawmakers in Tallahassee and in D.C. Uh, on the issues of limited government, free market capitalism, and economic liberty. Great organization. I'll say you do a good job of educating the public, too, here in Florida. Uh, JMI is my go-to reference source for things, for example, when, when laws are coming out or constitutional amendments providing outstanding information. The website is jamesmadison.org, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. All right. So let's talk a little bit about this legislative session and some of the highlights. One is this COVID liability shield. Maybe you can tell us about it. Sure. Well, uh, the pandemic uh, resulted in business lockdowns, business openings, and a whole host of kind of changes in CDC guidelines as we got more information. And one of the areas that Florida has kind of challenges in, we do a lot of things right, but one of the areas that we have challenges in is in our litigation environment, a frivolous lawsuit. And so um, the COVID liability shield uh, law that was one of the first, if not the first, that the governor signed uh, is one that will protect businesses uh, from 
frivolous litigation, for example, a person comes into a restaurant and then uh, subsequently uh, a week or two later gets diagnosed with COVID and decides they're going to sue whoever they can mm-hmm. uh, in order to try and reap some, some compensation. And so this, uh, this bill and the law, once it becomes effective, I believe, on July 1, will protect businesses that as long as they were making a good faith effort to follow those CDC guidelines at the time, that they are uh, not, uh, the, they will not be the subject of frivolous litigation. I think that's pretty powerful and pretty smart. I mean, we we have a long way to go with regard to uh, litigation and uh, tort law reform and all kinds of things. Don't I mean? I think. Uh, can you comment on that? Yeah, and and that's it kind of it goes to the crux of one of the the single biggest issues that Florida faces in the policy realm is the fact that. We are, uh, I think, 46th or 47th in terms of our uh, kind of how Florida is a judicial uh, kind of what they call a judicial hellhole for frivolous litigation. And so whether it was assignment of benefits uh, issues a couple of years ago, before that it was sinkholes, it was driveways, and what happens is um, contractors partner with attorneys and they try to game the insurance system, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and, and this is just, it's kind of like whack-a-mole. And yeah. so over time, those, uh, the, those kinds of issues pop up. And so this was the latest one. And so uh, credit to the legislature and the governor for seeing the foresight in, in passing this uh, before it became an issue. Yeah, well, thank you so much for that, that clarification. You know, I've been pretty excited about the news I'm hearing about school choice expansion in uh, Florida, and I think we're a leader nationally in this area, and I think it's pretty important. What are your thoughts? Yes, 100% Florida has been on the forefront and a leader in school choice over the last 10 to 15 years. Um, uh, a year or two ago, the legislature passed what were called the Family Empowerment Scholarships, which were uh, similar to what the old-fashioned vouchers would have been about 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now it, it, it focuses in on parents and families. And so what this legislative session we're going to see is Florida has, I think, it's six or seven different school choice programs. Uh, one for students with disabilities, one for students who have been bullied, one for the tax credit scholarship program, and so forth. What this legislature is going to do this session is combine those and then expand them out into either one or two very specific school choice programs. And so uh, I believe the House uh, and the Senate are both passing their bills uh, today that will expand uh, the choice programs out to another 61,000 students over the course of the next school year. And what we have found is that as the legislature has expanded out these programs, they have filled up almost immediately. So uh, two years ago, they passed an expansion that that gave around 18,000 new students uh, uh, a choice. That program reached max capacity immediately and wow. resulted in a waiting list. And so keeping up with expanding these out, uh, programs out uh, to more and more families is going to be uh, a win for Florida. There's no downside on this. I think this is so smart, and I hope uh, we'll see the day soon where basically parents will have a choice. Where, you know, they'll sit down and take a look at the schools and decide where they want to send their child I think just getting competition among schools is, would be a great thing, and getting more charter schools as well. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, so uh, we, I understand that property insurance reform is on the docket. Yeah, and you spoke to the tort issue uh, earlier, and we talked a little bit about it. Uh, property insurance rates, especially on the coast, and Florida has more coastline than any other state, uh, property insurance rates, especially on the coast, are, are getting And one of the reasons why is because of frivolous litigation related to roof repairs. And so uh, without the legislature acting, two things are going to happen. One is property insurance rates are going to continue to soar. And and in some cases, we're seeing, you know, double uh, 25, 30 percent increases in homeowners insurance rates. And the other thing is Um, major insurers are just exiting the market. And because of uh, the issue with uh, fraudulent litigation, and what happens is you get uh, someone comes by, inspects your roof, they find one or two shingles loose, 
and they end up doing an entire roof repair. And when the insurance company decides, you know, that's not a, 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 a that is a fraudulent claim, then they get sued. And so it's happening as a cottage industry in Florida. The legislature is taking up uh, both in the House and in the Senate reforms to this uh, kind of the tort issue that mm. will hopefully bring this into check. However, there are differences between the House and the Senate version. Right now, the Senate is uh, the bill that the, that was passed by uh, Senator Jim Boyd was much uh, was a much more robust reform effort. The mm-hmm. House bill, uh, among folks that I've spoken with in the insurance industry, still has some challenges, but there is a week to go, and so they're still working on that. Well, thanks for your clarification on that. That's very important, I, I do believe. So uh, with the little time we have left, can you comment on the budget? Sure, yeah. The one constitutional requirement that the Florida legislature has is to pass a balanced budget every year. Mm. Um, The initial chamber budgets, each chamber of the legislature will submit a budget. Uh, The House came in at about $97 billion, and the Senate came in at $95 billion. They will have within that about $10 billion in COVID relief funding from the federal government that's kind of coming through that will help um, kind of reduce some of the uh, cuts and and kind of trimming that they thought they were going to have to do. Now, I know folks uh, who are largely conservative fiscally, like myself, we want to make sure that, that Florida operates in a lean way. Mm-hmm. Florida has one of the leanest budgets in the United States. Uh, uh, number of state funding per capita is usually about 47th or 48th, which is a good thing. Yep. Our budget of 90-something billion dollars is around half of the budget of the state of New York, which actually has less people. So you can make the case that Florida's budget is about as lean as it gets. And so the $10 billion coming from the federal government is going to help us uh, kind of maintain that status. Um, I've heard a number of different things early on that there were going to be some health care cuts to agencies related to hospitals and so forth. It looks like those are off the table. It also looks like teachers are going to get a $1,000 bonus statewide uh, if uh, both chambers agree on that, which it looks likely that they will. Uh, In order for the legislature to uh, finish on time, which is Friday, they have to uh, finish the budget work by tomorrow, which uh, on Tuesday evening the budget has to be what they call laid on the desk. And then, then they have a three-day waiting period before they can vote on it. Wow, so interesting. Sal Nuzo, again, Vice President of Policy with the great James Madison Institute. J- JamesMadison.org is the website. Sal, this has been so interesting. Thank you so much for joining us. Anytime, Bob. Take Th- care. Thank you, Jim. Or Sal, I should say. My next guest is Jim McTagg. Uh, Jim is a former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief and author of a couple of murder mysteries he wrote. They're really great. The one is uh, Follow the Leader, and its sequel is uh, Shake the Money Tree, that and more, right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. The dining scene in Naples is among the nation's finest. Get a first-hand experience with Naples Culinary Walks. Join a guided food walk with a terrific guide in a small group through elegant Naples neighborhoods known for destination restaurants. In three hours, you'll stop for small plates on your chosen tour. Dining walk choices include morning, afternoon, and evening offerings on 5th Avenue South, Downtown 3rd Street, Waterside, Galleria Shops at Vanderbilt, and more. Prices begin at only $46 a person, depending on the tour you select. To find out more and to make a reservation, visit NaplesCulinaryWalks.com. That's NaplesCulinaryWalks.com for a great value and a terrific dining experience. Do you have an extra auto you'd like to donate to charity? Maximize your tax deduction, support your favorite charity, and help a local child in need by calling Naples Auto Donation Center. Naples Auto Donation Center is a not-for-profit licensed car dealer. Just call NADC at 692-9840 and they'll take it from there. You get a properly documented tax deduction for whatever the vehicle actually sells for. Your designated beneficiary charity gets half the profit after fix-up costs and the net revenue generated by NADC 
goes to Friends of Foster Children to provide tutoring and other enrichment activities for foster children the government doesn't provide. And NADC is also one of the few places in Collier County that sells inexpensive cars that actually run to folks who would otherwise not be able to afford one. It's a real win-win. Call Naples Auto Donation Center at 692-9840 or visit the website nadckids.com. You'll be glad you did. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us. We're providing you news and commentary rooted in a commitment to individual liberty, personal responsibility, limited government, and the rule of law. Right now we have with us Jim McTagg, former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief and author, as I mentioned before the break, a couple of great murder mysteries. Joe's really encouraged you to give him a read. Uh, one is called Follow the Leader, and its sequel is Shake the Money Tree. Jim, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Bob. I'm, I'm inside the Beltway, uh, preparing for a move outside uh, the Beltway, and uh, uh, reading about a poll this weekend that ran in the it ran yesterday on the front page of the Washington Post, and the Washington Post ABC survey that shows that the, in his first hundred days, President Biden is uh, one point more. Yeah, he's about one point more popular than Donald Trump was at this stage. Hmm. And I, I use I look at my gold standard, Ronald Reagan, who I think was the uh, most fabulous president in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. He was at he was uh, twenty over twenty points higher mm-hmm. than both Biden and Trump by this this time. And, and I'm looking at what was Reagan's secret sauce. Uh, what is Biden doing that is just souring the public? Yeah, I mean, just to insert here, uh, the environment is one that uh, right now, uh, to me, it looks like the mainstream media is beginning to, to demonstrate some concerns about his presidency. But for the most part, they're very extremely supportive of what's going on, as opposed to uh, Trump when he was president. I mean, he could do no nothing right. <laughs> he started off, the, and they started off with, uh, you know, deciding they're going to Russian collusion, all kinds of things. So, uh, in that environment, I think that speaks volumes about, um, you know, the the popularity issue. So, I guess my point is this: uh, the popularity, while it may be one point higher, it probably in reality, if we had a fair press, would be much lower. Uh, you're obviously right. Uh, the press was. Uh out to destroy Trump from day one. There's no question about it. So, so uh, the fact the fact that uh, Trump was able to be uh, over 50 percent in, in popularity in his first hundred days was an achievement. Yeah. Uh, the other thing I'm thinking about is uh, versus the days of Ronald Reagan. In, in Reagan's era, uh, it really only had one positive communications media, and that was television. Mm-hmm. Because radio, you know, there was no Rush Limbaugh on the radio at that time. Hmm. Um, and, and, you know, apologies to your profession, radio, but it didn't have the kind of reach that broadcast TV did. And, mm-hmm. and nowadays, it's there are all these competing medias, including right. the Internet. Podcasts are very powerful, so that uh, a president really has to be on the ball. He has to have a shop filled with communications experts like no other president has ever had. Uh uh, well, what do you think of Jen Psaki? I mean, she looks like a complete loser. Well, I'm never. There's only. Uh, the, I'm very skeptical. I was a White House correspondent, and I, I saw, uh, you know, many, many uh, press spokespeople. I didn't like uh, Jen Psaki when I was there during the Obama administration. I thought she was smug, and uh, she was more inclined to try to. Uh, close off questioning and actually answer questions. Mm-hmm. My favorite press spokesman was the late Tony Snow. Yeah. Uh, and um, his, uh, and, and I'm, I'm having a uh, senior moment here, but the uh, his, his successor in the White House, who is, she's now a, uh, on the five in Fox, oh. who, who I thought was, oh, Dana, Dana Perino, yeah. who I thought was very sharp. So uh, they were. I thought they were the gold standard for what a press spokesperson should be, and we haven't had a good one uh, since Dana. Interesting. Uh, um, now, looking at Biden, if you look at the polling numbers, uh, what's really killing uh, Biden is the border. 
um, and he's not addressing it. You know, um, so where Ronald Reagan was a master in his first hundred days, he he identified two major issues: mm. cut taxes, which is always popular with the American public, uh-huh. and taxes were very high. And and um, his other one was let's shrink the size of the federal government. Mm-hmm. So he focused laser like on those two issues, and he he went out on television and built up public support. He was he was urging people to write their Congress people to support him. And he was also uh, criticizing Congress from his podium, saying, look, if you don't like my proposal, come up with something better. Mm-hmm. And of course, they couldn't. Yeah. So, and and um, now Biden, on the other hand, I mean, the elephant in the room remains COVID. And, and although we like to believe that uh, if we get everybody vaccinated, in the next year, it's over. It's not because California is reporting 40 cases of the Indian variants, which apparently the uh, vaccines are not effective against. And so <laughs> yeah. we have to assume that we're going to have another round of uh, vaccinations next year to protect us from these variants. But, but he's rather than focus laser like on that elephant in the room, which has economic implications, you know, he's coming up with these big crazy two trillion dollar infrastructure bills uh huge spending on on environmental policy which is industrial policy uh he's going to pour money into education when the internet has just radicalized education and nothing we've been doing is working anyway you uh-huh. know just look at the people on the streets you you know you see the the vacant looks in the faces of the mob and you know something's wrong with education yeah um and the public isn't buying it. Yeah, you know what? And of course, it comes in the context of uh, of uh, 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 Donald Trump, who wanted to make America great again. And you considered everything he was doing. You know, I personally agreed with the direction he wanted to take the country. Uh, and uh, you listen. I, I watch what Joe Biden's doing. I said, "How is that making America great?" And I realize that's not his agenda. But, you know, it's in juxtaposition to Trump, and, you know, this guy is not paying attention to the needs of American people. He's paying attention to the people that financed his campaign and who's, running, who's now running the country. Uh, right. Yeah, Trump, you you remind me, how soon we forget, Trump was a brilliant communicator. Yeah. Um, his, twi- his adoption of Twitter was as brilliant as Franklin Delano Roosevelt's adoption of, of the fireside chats on the radio. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and you point to Trump is uh, he, he had a motto, make America great again, which he repeated, repeated, repeated. Right. Um, and won over uh, large swaths of the public. Uh, so again, you don't see that with the Biden administration. What the sense you get from Biden is he throws out these big numbers and, and you get the impression that he has uh, these bureaucrats behind the scenes that are dictating to him, mm-hmm. and that you know he he really doesn't understand what he's talking about. Mm. Uh, these in, these social engineers are pitching these programs, and he's just going happily, uh, blindly going along with them. I couldn't agree more, Jim. I think it's a great observation because it, you know he, he I don't know that he I'm not sure that he can articulate the defense. Of why he's doing what he's doing. I mean, he you know he throws his stuff out, and you know, it's just unbelievable. It's it is unbelievable. I just can't believe what what he's trying to do. Yeah, and I think well, let's look at education because he's going to. I understand when he gives a speech to Congress on Wednesday, he's going to throw out a big number. Um, education is not the same as it as it was i look at the for example uh, vocational education which um um, among uh, the minorities i think it was jesse jackson that attacked vocational engineer education back in the 80s as uh and and he may have been right that 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 the the white uh, education authorities were pushing black kids into vocational education vocational programs and foreclosing uh, the possibility of them going on to college, and so we had we had the uh, reaction, the overreaction, and vocational education was considered a, a dumping ground. Well, uh, we can see in the society around us that people with uh, what I call hand IQ—I mean, the really skilled yep. plumbers and carpenters—are making great livings, and, and and they've started and are running fabulous companies. 
And when you grow up poor, you have a lot of uh, needs as opposed to wants. And a vocational education uh, gives these kids the ability to meet those needs right out of the right off the. Uh, I, Jim, you know, I couldn't agree uh, more. I, I wish we could continue the conversation, but our time is done, Jim. So, But <laughs> a great, great conversation and great insights into to what's happening. I genuinely appreciate your commentary. Thank you so much for joining us. A pleasure, Bob. All right, thank you. Well, that's a wrap on today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. Always appreciate your feedback. You can send me an email at bobharden at hotmail.com. We have great guests tomorrow, and I hope you join us either live at 7 a.m. or on the podcast. Uh, make it a great day on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Namaste. Thanks so much for listening to the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. For more information and audio files of previous shows, visit www.bobharden.com.